Welcome to Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast, where we meet experts from all walks of life to learn their intrinsic motivation so that they can share it with the world. What do we have in store today? Stay tuned. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. Today we are into a, in for such a treat. I was really excited about speaking with our guest today. Uh, I've learned a lot about the subject over the years, and we actually have an expert. He's going to talk about tapping into the divine power of the soul, and he is the author of Reverse Speech and Theory and Practice, How to Use Your Unconscious Mind to Predict the Outcome of Future Events. And so there's a lot that I'm sure just from that subject alone from his book, can we predict future events? We're going to speak with the founder of Lionheart Publishing. Without further ado, I think I've dragged it on long enough. I'd like to introduce the expert, Josh Moody, to the podcast. Welcome, Josh. Hey, how's it going? Great. Awesome, Thanks for being man. with us. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. Podcast. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And I wasn't, it wasn't hyperbole when I was talking about at the beginning of the intro because I remember for me, my personal experience is around the secret time when 2006 had come out and everybody was talking about that good stuff. And around that, it was just, you just got, I got exposed to so many other modalities of one of which was uh, an expert, David Oates, and he was talking a lot about reverse speech and such. So it was, how are, you know, somebody speaking to you like I'm speaking to you, but if you can go behind and find out what they're unconsciously saying to you, that was mind-blowing at that time. Yes, yes. Um, I, uh, when I first got started with reverse speech, it was, it was shortly after 2006. So 2007 is when I started taking training classes from David. But prior to that, um, the only thing I really knew is that it was in music, and um, I realized that just through back in like the 70s and 80s, a lot of pastors were playing records backwards and finding hidden messages. Uh, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven is a, a really popular example of that. And um, so I, I knew it was happening in music. But when I stumbled upon David Oates' website and started listening to examples and, um, you know, looked at his theories, I was like, man, this is incredible. So I signed up for class. And um, what I, with reverse speech, what I like to call these moments is aha moments. So it's these moments where you, you find a reversal that is giving you information that you couldn't consciously have known, and the information turns out to be correct. Uh, you know, because there's still, after 10 years of using it, I still have doubts sometimes, you know. Um, but every time I get reversals, it'll just blow my mind. And if I'm projecting into gibberish or if I'm just imagining this stuff is there, how is it giving me accurate information? So um, once I started taking his class, my, one of, like my third homework assignment, third or fourth homework assignment, I, I had lost my car keys. And this is my first aha moment with reverse speech. I lost my car keys, and I recorded a session uh, asking myself, backtracking where I put the keys, um, the last place I remember having them. Um, and with David's theory of complementarity, whatever you talk about forwards, you're going to get reversals about. So if, if I'm talking about where I place my keys, I'm going to get reversals that expand upon that subject. And one of the reversals I got was the nails looking at it. And I thought, the nail is looking at it. What the hell? So I walked into, I had a walk-in closet at the time. It was a townhome where I was living. And 
there's a there's a, a full ledge on the window. There's a window in the the walk-in closet, and on the ledge were my keys, and the tip of a nail was pointing directly at my keys. And I was like, whoa! And uh, I remember I told David Oates, and he was like. Welcome to the world of the best speech, mate. <laughs> that, was it. that was my journey down the rabbit hole, man. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was pretty much how I, I was like, man, there's something here. dude. Um, but as far as the topic for that book, that was another reversal that I got in 2008 in January. I was just recording a session on myself asking, you know, seeing where I, I would see myself in six months as far as my goals go and what I was trying to accomplish in my life at the time. And one of the reversals I got, and this is January of 2008, one of the reversals I got was Summer of Shame, Let's Miss It. And I was like, Summer of Shame, Let's Miss It. That doesn't, doesn't make sense. Well, I just kind of brushed it off, which was a mistake. Now I don't make that mistake. If I get a reversal like that, I'll record another session and see what it's referring to. But, you know, I just kind of brushed it off. And in May of 2008, I'm from Houston, and I was, for spring break, I was going to Corpus Christi. And when you go from Houston to Corpus Christi, you pass through these really small towns um, like El Campo, Edna. These are like population 2,000, 3,000 people, good old boy, you know, cowboy hats, dip in the mouth. I mean, it's it's complete throwback of like something out of the 50s or 60s. Well, I, you know, was passing through this town and, you know, I'm a weed smoker. I don't hide it. I've been smoking weed for 20 years. I don't really see a problem with it. Um, but I had just smoked some weed. There was no marijuana on me. I knew that for a fact. And I got pulled over. You know, they smelt it. I gave them permission to search. I'm thinking I'm going to get let go. Well, anyway, they turn around and arrest me for possession of marijuana. And I'm like, how are you? There is no marijuana. What are you talking about? And basically, they told me it, the gist of it was, look, we don't care <laughs> what the evidence is. You try telling that to the DA, you'll get more than just probation. You'll get a third-degree felony for tampering with physical evidence. So I'm like, you know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know where I'm at. Had I known, this town's notorious for this type of stuff. They, they had a 12-page expose in the Austin Chronicle titled Crackpot Crackdown. And it's all about this town and how Bobby Bell, the DA, runs the town. Everyone's afraid of him. He's been the DA for 28 years. I mean, you can't make this up. Just type in Crackpot Crackdown Austin Chronicle, and you can read the whole article. Um, so it was just, it was mind-blowing. So I told the, uh, the magistrate the next morning, when they were setting my, my bill, I said I was going to return, retain my own attorney, you know, let them know I was going to fight it. And um, two weeks later, after I got bonded out, they turned around and indicted me for a third-degree felony, which in Texas, that's a two to ten. I mean, you just went from a misdemeanor to something that's a lot more serious. Uh, so, you know, I'm still not knowing where I'm at. I decided to take it to trial, you know, thinking, sure, can I get a fair trial in this town, which the trial was a joke. I mean, the, the, the prosecutor was able to subpoena any witness they wanted, including my assistant principal from when I was 16. I was 24 at the time. Uh, but any witness that we tried to subpoena, including the, the, the people in the booking area who heard this quote-unquote threat from the cop, uh, because that's illegal. They can't tell you that. Uh, but anyway, they wouldn't let me subpoena the booking people. They, any witness that I tried to subpoena, it was denied. So basically, I, I literally had no defense. <laughs> I had no witnesses. The state has all these witnesses against me. It was just crazy. Well, anyway, it was a shameful summer because I, you know, I ended up getting convicted, and it was, it was completely crazy. It turned my life upside down. Um, and after this happened, I, you know, I, I heard that reversal again, and I was like, man, if it can predict that, if it can tell me what's going to happen in the future, and this is you know, six months down the line, how, what, how could I structure a, a research 
experiment where it's something that's replicable by other people. And that was what led to the idea for the book. I mean, the main thesis of the book is a, a hypothesis that I put forward. I test it with myself and three other subjects, and then I, I reformulate the hypothesis. And I, I took the argument, I think, away from our reversals there to how can you structure a conversation forwards to get certain types of reversals. Uh, and the reversals I was trying to get is what's known as future tense reversals in the reverse speech community. So it's a category of reversals that specifically predict the outcome of behavior or of a future event personal to your life up to six months before it happens. And I mean, I'm, uh, other analysts I've talked to, there's uh, another guy, I forget his name, but uh, we were talking about this and he had gotten a, a reversal that said bash the Nick and he was doing something on the stock market. Well, anyway, the, he told me the stock basically that he found out what Nick meant and it represented some particular stock and basically this stock, it plummeted shortly after he got that reversal. So other analysts are having these same types of experiences. You know, they're getting reversals, they're telling them what's going to happen, and it actually happens. So I was just the first to actually formulate it into a, you know what I mean, a hypothesis and test it and provide something that other people can do and replicate. You know, I state in the book, don't believe what I'm telling you. I'm, I'm not trying to start new, some new faith or religion here. What I you know, want the reader to do is to read the book with an open mind and then conduct the experiment themselves and come to their own conclusions. Um, and so that was, that was really it. I mean, that's how I got the idea for the book. And what I did is I, I tested it on a horse race to see which horse would come in first, second, and third place. And um, surprisingly, the findings that I got, the subjects, whether they consciously knew about this race or not, most of them didn't read anything about the race. Uh, they were getting reversals that would contradict what they were saying forwards if they were lying. So, for example, um, if they said, I see horse number one not crossing the finish line, I see horse number one going to be in last place, and the actual outcome of the race is horse number one wins, you know, first place, they would get reversals like, um, you know, see them win, the sun shines, you know, it, reversals that are positive. Even though forwards they're stating something negative about this horse, they're getting these contradictory positive reversals, which basically they're trying to correct the lie because our reversals always tell the truth. So um, if you lie forwards, Uncannily, we actually correct our lies in reverse, which is, to me, it kind of still boggles my mind. But that was kind of one of the main ways that I was able to determine if what they were saying forwards was actually going to happen or if it wasn't going to happen, just due to the nature of those contradictory reversals. Mm. Wow. <laughs> okay. I, I'm trying to think yeah. of where to start the questions from that, because that, that was a, a whole... I mean, we can unravel that in one hour just on that one topic alone. Um, <laughs> one thing I do want to say, I want to ask you is back then, and I apologize, uh, unfortunately that happened to you, that experience, and what's your take on the, the state of affairs across the country now with the, with the, uh, the laws for the uh, green leaf? I think it's great. Um, I would like to see they, at the very least, decriminalize it on a federal level, but See, what a lot of people don't realize, okay, it's not about the drugs, okay? When you ban plants, there's other alkaloids in marijuana that are not psychoactive. You know, CBD is one of them. 
th- these compounds show enormous medical potential to actually help cure diseases. And they don't get you high, but because we've had this plant as a Schedule One plant, it's highly restricted. You can't have research on it. So really, it's counterproductive to, to you know, if you're trying to keep people safe and you want to keep people healthy, it's counterproductive to ban these plants that actually show enormous medical potential. So, I mean, that, that's a whole other issue in and of itself. But if you look at cigarettes, we have cigarettes are legal, but it's becoming more and more of a taboo just because of all the propaganda talking about the side effects of cigarettes. I think we could treat other drugs the same exact way. You know, I, I don't think heroin should be available at every 7-Eleven. Of course not. But I think we should have registered clinics where a doctor could administer it to long-term addicts. You know, it's under a doctor's supervision. You wouldn't have people dying from fentanyl-laced heroin if we just had a system like that set up. You know, and you keep it out of the hands of kids. And at the same time, you run propaganda campaigns that talk about the dangers of this drug and, you know, the side effects that you're going to experience. Then it's no longer the forbidden fruit. You know, then it's no longer that that apple that they said don't go eat. And of course, you're going to go eat it because they said not to. Now it becomes more of a, okay, well, these people are sick. They're addicted. They need their medicine. But really, I'm going to stay away from it, whether it's legal or not, just because I know the side effects. So, I mean, the whole war on drugs in general, I think, is a fail. It's a failed policy. Um, you know, and it's, we've created the biggest prison population on earth, man. Our infrastructure is crumbling. We got a railroad system from the 1920s. China's got bullet trains, you know, but we got the biggest prison population on earth. I mean, what's wrong with this picture? There's something wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? Something definitely wrong, but that's my take on it. So uh, let me ask you another uh, leaf-related question, and then we could jump off of that. So usually when you're, you know, a regular day, let's just say today, and I, or a work day, let's say Monday, and I have this is my plan for the day, and this is how I'm talking, as, uh, as opposed to being using a leaf, right? And have you ever tried doing reverse speech while under the influence after smoking? Uh, yes. Um, what I've noticed with speech reversals um, and smoking marijuana is it doesn't have too much of an impact on them. What does, though, is alcohol. Anything that's going to slur your speech forwards, you'll notice that your reversals are actually slurred and semi-formed. So if you're looking for, like, a compound that can, uh, you know, um, change your reversals or, or make them slurred, um, then alcohol is probably going to be the main one that does that. But marijuana doesn't. Um, it, it, not from my experience, at least, it doesn't do that. And when you're talking about reverse speech, and you say that's a truth theorem, I was just looking at uh, from from uh, reversespeech.com. They're saying that if you're lying in your forward statements, your reverse speech reveals the truth. If you're leaving out information, your reverse fills in the gaps. And if you yeah. are unsure how you're feeling then your reverse speech will provide you with emotional truth. Have you been able to substantiate that as well? Oh, yeah, man. There was, you know, after this event happened, see, this is the funny thing. As, as tragic as that 10-year sentence was and, and my life getting flipped, turned upside down, it was through that tragedy that I had the inspiration to write that book in the first place. So had that not happened, I probably would have never written that book. And, you know, the doors that have opened for me because of that would not be open right now. So I look at it with kind of a feeling of indifference. But shortly after that reversal in this whole event, I had a roommate. His name was Dan at the time. And he, um, I had known the guy for three years. And just all of a sudden, you know how roommates get funny sometimes. He just stopped working. 
and I was paying the rent. Well, I gave the dude three months. I'm not your mother. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to come to you and tell you, look, bro, you, you get the rent or go. You know what I'm saying? I, I hate to do that, but friends don't use friends like that. If you're my friend, you're not going to try and play me like that. You know what I mean? So anyway, I was recording a session on him about his motivation and why he hadn't worked for three months before I kicked him out. And one of the reversals I got, man, he, he said, uh, because I know what I need to do, but I just don't do it. And the reversal was, it's an act of the divine. And I was like, what? Because you don't get reversals like that. You know what I mean? When it's referring to like the divine, I mean, it's, that's pretty literal. It's, there was a higher spiritual force at work in these events. And now looking back, I understand what it really meant. Um, you know, in our, in our phases and cycles in life, as we grow from childhood into adolescence and then from adolescence into young adulthood and then young adulthood into middle age, we go through a series of transformations, and these transformations are marked by a death and a rebirth. Um, so an old life dies and fades away, and a new life is born from that. And um, whether people realize that's happening to them or not is, is quite irrelevant because that's the only way that they're going to be able to grow. You know, there's a, I can't think of the, the actual exact quote off the top of my head, but it's a Bible quote where it says, uh, when I was a kid, I dealt with childish things. But when I, when I became an adult, I, you know, I, I did away with childish things, something along those mm-hmm. lines. Uh, yep. it's, it's very true. As we grow in life, there, we experience these cycles of death and rebirth. Um, where an old life dies and a new life comes in. And, and that's what that reversal is referring to, is referring to the book and this whole new life that is going to be coming in from this tragedy. And basically that it was an act of the divine. Um, one of the reversals in my book actually says um, a God set up ad clock here. So, you know, there's some type of higher inspirational force at work um, and the whole concept and idea behind that book, I think. I love it. So, and it, it. I think it's good for the audience because what you're saying is that when people are flailing and they're like, "Whoa, is me, you should actually embrace that because the change is on the horizon. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we, um, as, as messed up as it might sound, I've learned in life to um, embrace both your, your joyful moments and your sad and tragic moments because it's, it's those moments equally that, influence your growth if we lived in a world where everything was candy land and everybody was picture perfect then you really wouldn't grow as a human being and you really wouldn't have the opportunity to experience conflict and therefore grow from that conflict you would just kind of be like an ignorant child waiting for somebody else to do for you what you can do for yourself wow uh, one popular thing for reverse speech is listening to uh, the presidents from times of yesteryear and today. And I noticed on, on, the, on the reverse speech site, they were highlighting the 2016 election. And there's so much upheaval now. So based off of what you just said, people should embrace a lot of this change because there's a lot of new uh, growth that's on the horizon as well. Yeah, you know, with the whole Trump situation, what I really see Trump as is like the final death throes of the baby boomer generation, um, which was marked by the biggest prison population on earth, by bigotry, by, you know what I'm saying, just everything that I think the millennial generation is completely opposed to and against. Uh, and if you notice, when he first took office, he tried to revamp the drug war. He, t- I mean, he appointed someone like the, the most hardline people to head up 
you know, these organizations and really just revamp the drug war. And the the millennials just weren't buying it. You know, they weren't, they they don't want that. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're tired of that. Uh, It's been 40 years. It's done nothing. It's actually made the situation worse. So it's time to rethink our policy. I mean, you're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. What is that? That's insanity. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's insane. We're spending billions of dollars on nothing. You know what I'm saying? To really just waste that money when we could be building bullet trains, we could be colonizing Mars. We'd be doing a lot of other stuff, man, with that money besides building walls and funding the biggest prison population on Earth. It's a crime. You know what I mean? It really it's, it's criminal to me. You know, it's a crime against the American people, man. You know, we don't deserve that, dude. You know? People that are addicted to drugs, man, these people are sick. They need medical attention. They need doctors, nurses. They don't need to be thrown in a prison cell and you know, be ordered to pay all these fines and restitutions and pee in a cup for you every month. It's just completely counterproductive to what, you know what I'm saying, what we really need in this country. But anyway, that's my, my two cents on it. Sure. So, and just a little last politics part of it is, you know, when you talk about the wall, there's a lot of uh, a lot of language barriers, right? And so if I speak a foreign language from the United States, then, you know, it's lost in translation. Are you finding or have you done any reverse speech and found that there were different messages based off the language of person that was their native language? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, actually. I'm glad you brought that up. So from my personal experience, I've predominantly worked with English-speaking clients, although I do have a – I teach English, um, but the kids that I teach are in China. So um, I, I do private tutoring for some parents that, you know I mean, I guess just really liked me as a teacher. And uh, I was doing reverse speech analysis on one of the parents. And she was talking in English, but her, that's her secondary language. Her main language is Chinese. Uh, and all the reversals I got were in English, although I don't know Chinese. So I'm sure there probably was some Chinese reversals in there. I just didn't catch them. But an interesting example that kind of relate, relates to what you're talking about, and it's on David Oates' website, he did a um, reversal analysis on Osama bin Laden. I don't know if you heard that one or not. But Osama no, bin Laden, well, he speaks English and Arabic, right? And um, forwards, he's talking in Arabic. And when you play it in reverse, it's actually in English. And it says, I will buy you the palace of evil. So if you're bilingual, you can get reversals in, in either dialect. So if you're you know, speaking Arabic and you also know how to speak English, there, there's a good chance that even though you're speaking Arabic forwards, you're going to get English reversals uh, and vice versa. Awesome. And I think David would wanted to jump in. Go ahead, David. Oh, yeah. So just to clear thoughts that it you had in Texas, you ended up doing time, 10 years? Uh, I did two years. Yeah, I did two years in prison. Two years. eating, and people don't believe me, man. I mean, you just type in Joshua Schmoody versus the state of Texas. It went to the appellate court. You can read the transcript yourself. This was literally over uh, a a joint. I supposedly ate a joint. This is in the transcript. So, I mean, it's absolutely insane. And, you know, people think that doesn't happen. I got news for you. It's happening all the time, especially in these smaller towns that have no other industry besides the prison industry. You know, in Houston, it's, it's more progressive. Bigger cities aren't really worried about small stuff like that. Nine times out of ten, a cop's going to let you go and tell you, you know, go home. I don't want to see you out here tonight. Okay, cool. But in small towns, this is all they got. You know what I'm saying? If you grow yeah. up in that town, you can be a, a lawyer, a bonding company, or you could uh, be a cop. There's your career choices. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's a problem. 
Yeah, I know Alabama kind of has some issues like that going on. So the other question I wanted to ask you is your your work. You What's that? You broke off. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah, you're better now. Okay. And so I was just asking about the reverse that you got on your roommate, that you got a fine a message, something like that. I was just wondering. Oh, yes. It was an act of the divine. The, the, the message, I was doing a, a session on Dan, um, which he was my roommate at the time, and he hadn't worked for like two months. And, you know, he was, he was giving me this BS excuse, I'm just not motivated. Well, maybe living out on the streets will motivate you to get a job and pay your rent. But anyway, um, I did a session on him trying to see what was going on with his motivation. And when he was talking about it forwards, you know, he said it's something I need to do. I, ju- I know I need to do it. I just don't do it. And when he said that, the reversal was it's an act of the divine. So what I took from that is that there is some sort of superior agency, whatever you want to call it, some sort of higher intelligence that was working behind the scenes at an unconscious level, creating these synchronistic phenomenon. You know, David Oates, as well as Carl Jung, David Oates followed a lot of his theories from Carl Jung's theories. And um, one thing they both agree on is that um, these symbols, these archetypes are not just symbols. They're actually carriers of energy. Uh, and what I mean by that is that when an archetype is activated in the unconscious, it creates meaningful coincidences in somebody's life consciously um, that it, it kind of represents the energy of that archetype. Uh, and an example of this in reverse speech is um, the wolf metaphor. So with David Oates, I don't know if you guys, if he talked to you guys about metaphor restructuring, but this is kind of like the crown jewel of his, his research. Um, reverse speech is, is so much more than just playing tapes backwards and getting messages. What David Oates develops really with a, a system, a psychotherapeutic tool um, that one could use to shift the metaphors that they're running in reverse. So, for example, um, if I'm not motivated forward, metaphor restructuring is a technique that David Oates developed, uh, a psychotherapeutic technique, which allows reverse speech practitioners to actually shift or change somebody's reversals, somebody's unconscious metaphors that they're using. So the best way to think about this is think about the unconscious mind is like this giant computer program. Right. Um, But instead of ones and zeros for its software programming code, instead of ones and zeros, it uses the language of myths. Um, So myths are its source code. And um, if, for example, I'm a person who's lost motivation in life and we're doing a session and I'm talking about I've lost motivation, I don't know why, uh, odds are I will get a reversal um, which will refer to the wolf in some way. So an example would be like my wolf is sick. Well, wolf is a common metaphor that we all use collectively to, um, at least in the Western world, to represent motivation. So if my wolf is sick, then that means consciously I've lost motivation in in life. Um, And with metaphor restructuring, what you can do is, um, through a form of hypnotherapy, you can take the client on a pictorial journey and change this wolf metaphor. What's interesting about it, though, is that the actual story, the metal walk that you use, comes directly from the client's reversal. So it's not um, a story that you had any input in. It's actually a story that comes directly from their unconscious. 
so what I mean by that is when you record a session, your first session, and you get a reversal like my wolf is sick, what you would do is you would record a second session, and you would bring that reversal up. It's called reversal feedback. You would say, okay, my wolf is sick. What does this mean to you? How can you make the wolf better? And as crazy as this sounds, consciously they're not going to know. You know, well, I don't know how to make the wolf better. Maybe I need to give them some medicine. Well, when you play it backwards, you'll get reversals from an even deeper area of the mind, which will actually tell you how to make your wolf better. So um, if you said forwards, I don't know, maybe I need to give the wolf some medicine, he could get a reversal like give him a red pill. Um, and what that is is that's a trance instruction. That is actually an instruction for the, the analyst to include that in the meta walk and, and do this with the wolf. And when you do this, the wolf will no longer be sick. Um, and thus, once that change is made um, on an unconscious level, the behavior manifests itself consciously about six to eight weeks later. Um, but what's really interesting with this technique is that the, the change of behavior is effortless on a conscious level. So when the change happens, you don't even really realize that the change has happened until after it's already happened, which is really, I've just found crazy with, with um, metaphor restructuring. So that's, that's um, the kind of like the higher levels of reverse speech. It, it's about so much more than just finding backward messages. I mean, there's actually a psychotherapeutic tool that he developed that I think is, is going to revolutionize Jungian psychology, analytical psychology, um, especially if it's, it's combined with dream analysis. So, you know, that's, it's, it's been an incredible journey when it comes to that. Um, it, it, there's no other therapeutic tool that I know of that allows somebody to act directly upon the unconscious mind in that manner and make these changes at an unconscious level. Hmm. Stay, let's stay there for a second, Josh. So it makes me think mm -hmm. of, you know, before you incarnate, there's some people that are like, oh, you know what? I changed my mind. Like, do over. I really don't want to come this time. And you, and <laughs> you already have this contract, right? So you find yourself, you're 18 or 35 or 85. And you're like, oh, I, I didn't want to incarnate this time. Do you uncover that uh, these were some of your uh, contracts that you have to fulfill on a spiritual level? Um, yes. The, so let's, let's, get into, let's get into Jung and David Oates because David Oates borrowed heavily from Jung's theories on the, the unconscious, the levels of consciousness um, and the collective unconscious. So a lot of his work in part is derived from Jung's work. Well, Jung believed that the unconscious mind Unlike Freud, Freud just looked at the unconscious mind as a, a retrospective thing. So it's something that deals with repressed memories, repressed infantile sexual fantasies. It's not, there's nothing prospective about it. There's nothing that can tell you what your destiny is, right, according to Freud. Well, Jung realized that not only was the unconscious mind retrospective, not only did it deal with repressed memories and, and infantile fantasies, but there is also a perspective element in the unconscious. There is an element in our unconscious that deals specifically with our destiny and with our purpose. And it expresses this destiny and purpose through images which Jung called the image of the self. Um, so it, it uses or it creates mandalas, which I didn't even know what a mandala was until I read his Psychology and Alchemy. And I was like, wow, because some of the inner experiences I had I didn't realize they were mandalas at the time, but they stuck with me. You know, I've had about four dreams in my life, which are, Jung would call great dreams. These are dreams you, you have and you don't ever forget. Um, and they usually occur at distinct periods in your life. 
So anyway, if the unconscious mind through dream analysis can tell you prospective things about your future, about your destiny, your purpose, then it's assumed because reversals come from the same area of the mind that they could do the same thing. And from my experience, they can. If you're structuring a conversation specifically talking about your destiny, your purpose, what you feel you're supposed to do in life, then you're going to get reversals that expand upon that. So it really just it's about using the theory of complementarity to your advantage. Whatever you say forwards, your reversals are going to complement or expand upon. So if I really want to know serious questions like that, then you want to structure a conversation forwards in such a way that you talk about where you see yourself, what you feel your purpose is, and why you feel this is your purpose and how you can achieve this purpose. I love it. And I'm thinking today, just to be topical, it, and we're talking about being stuck in some in, or wolf metaphor. You know, right now in 2019, the uh, suicide rate is just so high, especially among young people, and also mm-hmm. for those that have done multiple tours uh, overseas. So has yes. there been any outreach or have you reached out to a lot of them? Because what you're saying is these are unconscious uh, feelings that are coming to the surface they don't know about that can be rectified. Right. Yeah, so I mean, all personality, um, from my research, all personality is formed within and then it manifests itself outwards. So um, behavior is extremely hard to control if you're simply conditioning from an outside perspective. You can do it, but you have to have constant reinforcement and a lot of times the conditioning is not going to be 100% foolproof. The behaviors change. what I'm going to do, I do not have, um, what I've been doing with my practice is just helping. Right now I'm doing it with some homeless people in this area, um, but I'm probably going to be starting an actual, you know, practice where I will take new clients. But right now my list is really, I've got a handful of clients. I really don't charge them anything. I'm doing it for my own research so I can um, enhance my own skills and see if the changes that I'm making are actually happening. And if they are, once I get, you know, get that down pat, then I'll probably eventually go into the, the uh, psychotherapeutic aspect of it. But right now, I, I have not reached out to them. It's, it's sad. It's a sad situation because, you know, it seems like our veterans, whether it's the Iraq War, whether it's Desert Storm, whether it's Vietnam, when they come back, they're forgotten. They're, you know what I'm saying, they're, they're marginalized. They're given substandard health care. Um, you know, it's really sad to see this, you know, that, that they're treated like this. But I couldn't expect anything less from somebody who's done three, four tours. I mean, you, typically you don't do that. You don't put somebody through that many tours. But there's a lot of soldiers in this last war. They did three, four, five tours over there. And that, that's enough to make anybody go a little bonkers if you're having to see that all the time, five tours. Um, but I think the main problem with suicide rates, not just in the military, but in, in our country, with all these school shootings and with, uh, you know, people basically, the issue, and Joseph Campbell, the author of A Hero with a Thousand Faces, he did an interview back in the 80s shortly before he died uh, called The Power of Myth. It's, you can watch it on Netflix. It's a wonderful interview. But um, he, he makes a statement that we've lost our myth. And, and what he means by that is that the, the myth that we, were, we grew up um, believing and, and using as the basis for our culture, the Christian myth of the Christ. Um, we've lost the meaning of the myth. And, and what he means by that is it's no longer something that we can actually live. It's something that we look at from a second hand, you know, far away. And, okay, this, this Christ being came according to this myth, but 
this Christ being is never going to come again, and we can never know God on a very personal level. It's, it's just something outside of us, and we have to have this middle man to tell us what to think and what God wants. Um, so the underlying issue is that people have lost connection with that myth. Their, their life has become meaningless. And we strive as human beings. I think there's something innately within us that we, especially as you get older, that we strive for purpose. We strive for meaning. Now, whether they consciously realize this or not is a different story. But a lot of young 20-something-year-olds will, you know, at 21, go get married, start having kids. And, hey, if that's what you want to do, that's what you do. But you really haven't had enough time to know yourself. So you get in this huge commitment, and now you find out the person you love, you hate, and, you know what I'm saying, it's, it's all because you didn't give yourself enough time to grow. But what I'm getting at with that is that they're getting into these relationships because there is an unconscious need to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And this can be accomplished with children because now you're taking care of another human being. Now you're, you are a part of something that is greater than yourself. So at an unconscious level, it satisfies that need for purpose and meaning in life. But if you have a person growing up with no purpose, with no meaning, with no direction, with no connection to their inner self, to know who they are and what they're supposed to be doing, these people, you know, they end up going crazy and doing crazy stuff because in their mind, my life is meaningless. This is it. We die. There's nothing else. And and that's it. And that's a really horrible perspective to have. Luckily with me, I've had inner experiences, I, I don't believe there's an afterlife and there's a soul. I know. There's a total difference between faith and, and gnosis and knowing through personal inner experience. So I, I realized from an early age, from some of these experiences I was having, I was seeing into the spiritual world. I couldn't control it. It wasn't something that I asked for. And a lot of times I would see things I didn't want to see, just to be honest. I mean, it, some, sometimes it scared the crap out of me. Um, and I thought I was losing my mind, and that's when I really got into Jung's works and, and reading his collected works, and everything started making sense, and that kind of keeps me grounded. But I guess in a way I'm lucky to have had, and anybody else who's had these experiences, to have had these inner experiences where I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is something beyond this, and that in actuality this is Maya, this is the illusion, this is not, this is school, this is a temporal you're here to learn the lessons you're supposed to learn, and then you go back home. It's not like this is it, and then, you know what I'm saying? And a lot of near-death experiences, they will state the same thing, that the reality on the other side is like the real reality. That's, that's yeah. real reality. This is the dream. And um, yeah. when you have that perspective, you know, your, your outlook on life changes. And I think that that's a needed perspective now. I think people, they are craving a sense of... Um, spiritual direction. They're, they're craving a sense of spiritual closeness with something higher than themselves. And all they're really getting is a bunch of moral dictates and, you know, being told to appease a tyrant, you know, a man-made tyrant in the clouds, rather than, you know, looking within themselves and, and understanding that everything you need is within you. And God never left you. God is within you. It, you know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's that inner voice that we all have. Some people choose not to listen to it. And that's why they become neurotic, depressed, and have no meaning in their life. The people that do listen to it are the people that eventually achieve what they're supposed to achieve and, and have a totally different outlook because they realize there's a special, Socrates called it his special heavenly friend when he was talking about his, his daemon, this, this inner God within guided and directed him to philosophize. Um, and we all have it. It's just a matter of tapping into that. And I think reverse speech is a great way to tap into that. 
a higher source of intelligence that's within yourself that is outside of your own conscious experience. It can give you information that, you know, you have. You know, I mean, we, don't, we only use 10% of our brains. The other 90% is unconscious. And that is really where the power is at, is in that other 90%. People don't want to accept the fact that your ego is actually secondary to your unconscious. It's not the other way around. The, the ego likes to think it's independent and likes to think it's in complete control. But in actuality, there is a higher force, an unconscious force that is at work within that person. And the ego can fight it and, and you know, run away from that destiny or the ego can embrace it. But that's a hard thing to do because a lot of times this destiny might be completely opposite to what you had planned for yourself ego-wise, consciously. And that's the misunderstanding in, in Jung's work is, is they think his, his psychology is all about fulfilling your ego needs. And that's is completely not what he was talking about. He, he's talking about two centers in the personality. One is conscious and it's ego but the other is unconscious. And just like the ego, it has a mind, it seemingly has a mind of its own. It has a consciousness of its own and it's this other within us, basically. So Josh, do you, um, do you notice any, any, like, well, how long was the session first? First of all, I'll ask that question first when someone, when you work with someone. Yeah, so basically it really depends on what they're trying to do. In terms of meta walks, what I'm doing right now is I'm, I have a handful of homeless people that you work on one problem, so you keep the session on point. So, for example, with one of them, it's his drug usage. You know, he's homeless, and, you know, it's obvious he's got a problem with meth. You know, he's, he's, he's completely ruined his life. I mean, his looks are gone. He doesn't, his teeth are gone. It's, it's very sad. Um, but what we're doing is we're focusing on, the addiction and on what, how his life would be if he wasn't addicted, what he thinks uh, the addiction has caused, the hardships, how he can resolve it. So we're keeping the, the conversation on one particular topic that we want to change. And those sessions are 30 minutes. It's three 30-minute sessions is how it's set up. So the first session is just talking about what you want to change. So we talk about the addiction. When did you first start using um, you know, what is the impact it's had on your life? The next session is where you go over the reversals from the first session with the client and talk about each reversal. So with the first session, when he's talking about addiction, he might get a reversal like um, it's, it's a black snake in the oak tree. Well, that reversal is actually telling you the metaphoric code that is responsible for that behavior pattern consciously. So when you bring that up and say, well, this, this black snake is in the oak tree, how can we get the black snake out of the oak tree? How can we change the black snake's color? And consciously, they're not going to know, typically. Consciously, I don't know, but you encourage them to just play along because you're speaking the language of the unconscious. You're speaking in fantasy and fairy tale and myth. So it's, it's not about consciously, rationally trying to make sense of this. It's about just letting it flow and just saying what comes to your mind. I think we could you know, uh, get, a, get a lasso and get the snake out of the tree. So as they say that in the second session, you will get reversals that will actually tell you how to change that behavior pattern in first session. Um, so with those two 30-minute sessions, what you'll do is you'll collect all the reversals that are trans images and instructions. So they're um, reversals that are giving you specific instructions on what to change. And you put them together in a story that's called a meta walk. Um, and you you practice an induction technique using a form of hypnotherapy and you take them on this journey through their own story. 
you change the metaphors and then you record the last session about four weeks later after the change. And you record that third session to make sure the change has been made. So you will specifically be looking for reversals that say the snake is no longer in the tree, you know, that, that hint that this metaphor has now changed. And as long as you get reversals that are basically telling you, yes, this metaphor's changed, that means that it worked and they should experience this behavioral outcome in their life within six to eight weeks after treatment. And it'll, it'll just hit them. They, they will just realize, wow, my behavior changed. It's not like a conscious effort of, man, I need to change this behavior. Man, I need to get more motivated. It's more of like they just one day, all of a sudden, they're super motivated. They're doing all this stuff. And, and then they say, huh, I'm motivated now. So it's, it's very powerful. You know what I'm saying? Because you don't, there's no conscious effort besides the session work that, that you need to do for the change. It just it happens automatically at an unconscious level. So that's basically how the metaphor restructuring works. Now, some clients that I, I work with don't want to do the whole round of metaphor restructuring. They just want specific information, um, whether it's about their business or about their health or, or whatever. Um, and those sessions can be anywhere from five minutes to 30 minutes, depending on the detail and, and the level of, you know what I mean, like how deep do you really want to go? If they're just trying to do a quick gloss over, five, ten minutes. But if they really want to get deep, um, then I always recommend 20 or 30 minutes because then we'll get a very good amount of reversals that we can use to determine the meaning that the unconscious mind is trying to convey. Hmm. What about in regards to, do you, have you noticed any, are there any differences in regards to just men and women when you're doing this type of work? just from the gender, or is it pretty much the same across the board regardless? Well, you know, there's one thing I've noticed with both men and women, and, I, you know, I was like this. We, I think we all are like this to a certain extent. I've gotten a lot better. But um, what reverse speech has taught me, one of the main things it's taught me is that there is a disconnect with about 90% of the population between who they, they portray themselves to be, their persona, the mask of the actor, you know, their professional self, I guess, and who they really are, um, their inner self, the, the, the desires and, and longings of the deepest uh, levels of their being. So what happens in this sort of environment is that you have this disconnect and this split in people's personalities, right? They, they are on a conscious level. They're trying to live the life society wants them to live. They're trying to follow all the rules. They're trying to be, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Perfect, but on the inside, they're actually screaming. They hate their life. They, they, you know what I'm saying? But on the outside, they put the front of everything's great. I'm happy. I love it. But deep down, they're hurting. Um, and people, for whatever reason, are brought up from an early age to, to, to think or to, to not be honest with themselves, basically. They're taught that it's somehow a virtue to not be honest with yourself, to repress things that you're feeling rather than deal with them and understand why you're feeling this way. Um, and so it, it leads to a, a sort of environment where you just have a bunch of people that are just directionless, purposeless, and they have no, no overreaching goal or desire to do anything else besides just live day by day. And, you know, it just, it becomes a really sad state of affairs where life is like, you know, uh, <laughs> It's just something you're ready to get over with. You know, you come, you do your little nine to five every day and barely scrape by and then you die and then that's it. And that's a, that's a pretty bleak outlook on life. But from what I've noticed with a lot of people, because of this disconnect between their inner and outer selves, um, there is no, 
they don't take the question of purpose and and destiny and, and direction really seriously, I guess. Let me ask you an ageism question with, with the regards to that, Josh, because mm-hmm. I know in some Jewish uh, sectors, you know, uh, when you start getting, I guess it would be not seen as clandestine, but not the general population, they're, you're known at, or you're expected to kind of just live your life willy-nilly until you're 40. And then when you're 40, like you said, you get older, you have that sense of purpose. But the reason why you're supposed to live that willy-nilly, if you will, for 40 years is because so you can relate to the layman. Like some of the stories that you're sharing, if you didn't go through those, then you wouldn't have that breadth of knowledge to uh, reach the common man. What's your take on that? Yes. Um, so that's, uh, that's really that's a good question um, or a good statement. So in terms of that, let me go back to great dreams because this, this is what really relates to destiny. So according to Jung, and he, he stated this in his essay on dreams, but it's in his collected works as well. We, for the most part, we all have great dreams naturally scattered throughout our life and they occur at distinct periods of life. So the first quote unquote great dream that people usually have is in their childhood. It's before they hit adolescence. Um, and what I define as a great dream is a dream that you have that makes such an impression on you, you never forget it. So it's a dream you remember 10, 20 years later after having the dream. And the reason you remember that is because it is an important dream. There's a message in that dream that actually relates to your, your greater self, to your, the greater personality, to your, your mission and your purpose, why you incarnated in the first place, right? Um, so basically, the first great dream we have is as kids. The next one we have is when we hit adolescence. Um, and then after that, the third one we have is in our midlife. And then the final one we have is shortly before our death. Um, but these, these great dreams, as I said earlier, they occur naturally throughout an individual's entire lifetime. The goal of, of Jungian psychotherapy um, is to condense this natural lifelong process of finding yourself um, and these scattered great dreams into a shorter time frame. And Jung talks about this as well. Um, Basically with Jungian psychotherapy and and Jungian's system of dream analysis, you take this lifelong process and condense it into 10 months to a year. Um, and, And how you do this is a exclusive concentration on the center. Um, You know, the, the unconscious center of your being, um, and once you turn your attention to that and you're understanding the meaning of the messages that your dream series is trying to convey, your unconscious mind, the, the dreams, the nucleus of meaning shifts until it starts producing images of the self, mandala symbols and images of the self. So waiting until you're 40, some people, that, that might be a, a good thing for them. Other people, I know with me, the first, uh, you know, the first great dream I had, I was about five years old, and I still remember that dream. But the, the dream that came after that in my adolescence was a, you know, more of a mystical experience. It was a great dream, but it was also a, a very spiritual dream at the same time. So having had these experiences early on in life, I already knew from a very young age that I had a purpose that related to these symbols, to these images in some way. I might not have understood the full meaning of the dream, but that meaning comes to you as you, you live your life and, and, you know, understand what those symbols were referring to. <clears throat> so it really depends because some people will have 
a very profound experience early on. Jung was one of these people as well. He had a series of great dreams when he was young that really made him decide on getting into the medical field. Um, and he relays those dreams in his autobiography, the um, memories, dreams, and reflections. But other people might not have this great dream experience until later in life, like Nietzsche. Nietzsche, um, thus spake Zarathustra, was really the, um, the flowering of what his unconscious self wanted, right? The problem with Nietzsche is that he actually consciously identified with the unconscious archetypes and his unconscious that were trying to, to speak. And, and what I mean by that is Jung talks about this extensively. It's an inflation of the ego. So let's say you have a mystical experience and it, it deals with Jesus, right? You're a Christian and, and you see Jesus or something in your dream, right? Well, if you don't recognize that the symbol and your individual self are two different things, you are not the symbol but you can act as a sort of vehicle for the manifestation of that energy, but you are not that energy. So you could have a dream of Jesus, right? But you are not Jesus. You see what I'm saying? You cannot think consciously, okay, I'm a Messiah. You see what I'm saying? But you have to realize that I am playing a role. I am fulfilling the needs of this symbol, you know, giving it conscious expression because this is what it seeks. Um, but in a, in a creative way where I still... Uh, there's, a, there's still a, a difference between who I am individually as Josh and the archetype that I'm um, becoming a vehicle for as far as the manifestation of that energy goes. So it just, everybody is going to be a little different in that respect. Some people might not have these, these great dream experiences until later on in life, while others will have them at a very early age in life. And um, Jung noticed this as well. So it's not, it's very hard to, to say everybody's going to have these great dreams at these particular areas of life. You know, these are theories. So from Jung's empirical observations, a lot of people had them with that pattern. You know, they started in childhood, went to adolescence, midlife, and then shortly before death. But other, other patients would not have these profound experiences until they were, you know, late in life, 40, 50 years old. And at that time, that's when they really start taking the question of purpose and destiny seriously because this dream is is telling them, hey, look, man, you know, you need to focus on this, and this is why you're not forgetting. So it really just depends on that person's own level of, of inner development on, on where they're at. I mean, I definitely understand what they're saying as far as having that layman's perspective, but if you're somebody who's had these great dreams early on in life and you, you understand that there's an importance, then that probably wouldn't be the best approach, you know, for you because the longer you run from it, the, the bigger this gap that you're creating between your conscious self and your unconscious self. Um, and that leads to what Jung called a neurosis, which is a, just a split in personality. So um, that's kind of my take on it uh, when it comes to, to destiny and, and great dreams. And it just really depends yeah. on that person's own level of spiritual development. The, the thing with all dreams, and this is unique with Jung, is Jung understood that dreams revolve around, they circumambulate around a nucleus of meaning. So what you meant by that is that it's virtually impossible to tell the meaning of a dream if you just have one dream. You have to actually have an entire series of dreams, consecutive. So what he would have his patients do is write down their dreams for, you know, six months to a year daily, and he would have a thousand dreams, 800 dreams. And when you have that many dreams, then you begin to notice recurring motifs in these dreams. 
recurring mythological elements in these dreams. Um, and you can use that to provide some context as to the overall meaning. And once you uncover the meaning that the, um, the unconscious is trying to convey, it's a nucleus shifts to a higher level until finally it starts producing what Jung called images of the self. Um, and these are our entire destiny encoded in a symbolic form. Um, and, and that's really the, the goal of Jungian psychotherapy is to um, harbor this experience within an individual where they have this experience of divinity within themselves, this experience of greater purpose you know, within themselves, a higher intelligence that is guiding and directing them. So through a natural course of, let's say, that year of dreams, are you also saying that through reverse speech or future tense reversals, you could shortcut the process? Um, well, that's my next book. The, the reverse speech in theory and practice dealt specifically with sensory function. So the, the hypothesis I set forth in that book is when discussing the outcome of future events, using the kinesthetic sensory function or talking about what you feel is more likely to generate future tense reversals than using the visual or auditory sensory function, talking about what you see or what you hear. So I developed 14 questions. Seven used the feeling, the kinesthetic sensory function. The other seven used the um, visual and auditory. And I asked these same questions to four subjects, myself included, and then developed the transcripts and came to the conclusion. The next book, um, and this is why I've really brushed up on Jung. I've, I've been reading a lot of his, I'm almost halfway through his collected work. But um, the next book, I'm going to be dealing with this exclusively, the image of the self and using reverse speech as a sort of exemplary tool um, in conjunction with dream analysis to help speed up this process of, you know, producing images of the self and these, these mandala symbols, which represent wholeness. Uh, and the name of that book is Unveiling the Self, a Psychodynamic Approach to Spiritual Enlightenment. If people want to, they want to check that out, I'm, it's a free Udemy course, um, it's a five-part course. The first part's already up there. I'm making the second part now. Uh, it's completely free, but it's called An Introduction to the Analytical Psychology of Carl Jung. It's on Udemy, and they can check that out. Um, what I go over in the course is, is pretty much going to be the basic concept for the book. Um, I'm approaching it a little differently with the course, but basically I think that reverse speech can be used in conjunction with dream analysis to convey that nucleus of meaning even faster. So rather than having to just use the amplification method and, you know, use myths and try and determine what the meaning of these symbols are, um, you could use reverse speech and just talk about the dream and get reversals that will tell you if you're on the right track in terms of meaning or if you're not on the right track and why you're not on the right track. So um, that's really going to be the premise for my second book. Well, that's awesome. And, and where would they actually, because we are at that top of the hour, I knew that hour is going to fly by. There's so many more questions. <laughs> sure. David has, I have. Uh, but I, I do know that you, um, you have uh, Udemy lectures and you have yes. your book and you're talking about your that uh, new part of your course. So it, I, I think it'd be a perfect time to, to drop some links and talk about how people can get yeah. in touch and get more information for that. Yeah, sure. So um, they can go to Udemy.com, and um, my instructor name is Joshua Schmoody. It's my same name, but um, I have a few courses. Uh, two are on book distribution. One is Book Distribution 101. The other is Expanded Distribution, and then I have a course on Carl Jung called An Introduction to the Analytical, the Analytical Psychology of Carl Jung. Um, they can also go to my publishing company website, mylhp.com. 
for Lionheart Publishing. I have in the blog section I have uh, some tips for paperback and ebook distribution as well as examples of reverse speech. But the best way to really get in touch with me um, is just to follow me. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and my handle is my first and last name, so at Joshua Schmoody. I've got reversals of the week that I post on Instagram. So if they want to hear some, some fresh examples and some examples from the paperback edition of the book, um, they can just go to my Instagram, connect with me there, follow me. I'll follow back. And if they want to message me or, or chat, um, you know, I'm always available on those platforms. Awesome. Well, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. Josh, man, I mean, the hour is too short. We definitely need to stay in touch so we can get you back on. Yeah, yeah sure, man. Reach out to me. You got my email. Awesome. <laughs> Take care, man. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks again for checking out another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homies Perspective podcast. Please check us out on our website at intrinsicmotivation.life where you can click on the speak pipe button and leave any suggestions for a future podcast that you'd like us to cover. Also check us out on our social media sites. We have a YouTube channel, Facebook page, iTunes podcast, in addition to Stitcher and Google Play, all under Intrinsic Motivation from a Homies Perspective. Check you out next time. Have a great day.